What does it mean to influence differently? Introducing Techfluential from Deloitte, C-suite conversations with tech-driven leaders. In this episode, host Lou DiLorenzo explores why the role of the CIO is changing and how successful leaders are embracing the opportunity. I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're speaking with Karen Altfest, a legend in the financial advisory world. Karen is principal advisor and executive vice president at Altfest Personal Wealth Management, the company she runs with her husband, Lou, and their son, Andrew. Together, her team manages over a billion dollars in client assets. Women make up about one-third of all financial advisors today, a pretty low number. But when Karen started out in the industry back in the 1980s, she had almost no female role models and few women as peers. But she recognized that there was a need for advice that catered to women, especially for women going through major changes in their lives, like dealing with the death of a loved one or spouse. Today, she's here to tell us how she's defied society's expectations, grew up to be a leading name in the industry, and has some advice for how to keep your finances on track in tough times. Karen, welcome to Secrets. Oh, thank you, Veronica. Glad to be here. Great to have you. First, how are you doing? Well, I think everybody's learning new things. And, you know, you can look at this very positively. Well, I learned four months ago how to do a lot of Zoom meetings. And while I never had proper respect for people who said they wanted to work from home, I sure do now. I see that it's all possible. Karen, you've been recognized for many years as one of the top names in financial advising, but you didn't start out in finance. You actually got a PhD in history. How did you get into this business? Well, you know, actually, even before that, I started off as a third grade teacher and then decided to go for my PhD and become a historian. And uh, my husband came from Wall Street background and started a financial planning business at the time when it was very, very new in 1983. And I was hanging around his office, speaking to a lot of people, listening to their situations, their stories, and what they would like to accomplish. And I wasn't able to help them. At the same time, I was running a program for people who wanted to be financial planners at Pace University. And so I thought, I'd love to learn that, and I'd love to be able to not only chat with these people about their lives, but to help them decide how to handle their lives. So you joined your husband's firm, and eventually you became equal partners. What kind of response did you get from clients when you joined the firm in a leadership role? I think the clients were very happy about it. I probably was ignored by some clients, but most clients were very happy to have a woman to talk to as well as a man. The ones who ignored you, how did you deal with that? How did you cope? I didn't really put myself into their situation. I would sit at the table. I would try to draw them out about their family stories, their situations, their money situations. But if they wanted to speak to a man about um, substantive issues, I let it happen. Psychologically or emotionally, did that impact you? I didn't care for it, and I thought I would like to change it. 
but not at each person's meeting. <laughs> but <laughs> over, over a period of time, I thought we should do better in the industry, yes. You were one of the earliest financial advisors who focused specifically on the needs of women. You've written books, created courses and financial tools for these clients. What was your aha moment when you knew that this was where you wanted to make your impact? I think it really was very early in my life because in my family, financial information went from down the mail line from my father to my brother and the daughters while being very valued as future wives and mothers were not given the same information, the same education in personal finance. And I thought, that's wrong. I'd like to do that. And I, at the time, of course, I didn't know that that was a career, that I'd be able to do it. But as I got older and, and, and went along, I said, people were coming to me with questions and uh, I was happy to try to tackle them. Were there any women you looked to as mentors and how did you get the vision to be a leader? Because there weren't a lot of women doing what you were doing at the time. I concentrated mostly on our own business and on our own clients and their needs. And uh, one of the things I'm very, very excited about is that I like to give women confidence in planning for their own lives. And so while a lot of people think my goal in life is to give women a lot of knowledge, yes, we talk about knowledge. I've recently given a course in financial literacy, which I think is so important. And we're only 14th among the nations <laughs> in our literacy rates. Right. But so it's not so high for a country like ours. But really, to give women the confidence, we can always get the information. There are so many sources of good information these days. But to have the confidence to say, I can do this, I can make my own decisions is so important. The advisory industry has changed some over the years in terms of access for women into the field professionally and how women are treated as clients. You've had a front row seat to all of this. Looking back, where have you seen the biggest shift? I wish I could say that there were many more women uh, who were in the industry, but certainly that's not true. There are women and there are some very strong and good women, very able women. But as you said, there are a third and they may be less in the fee-only business which we're in. And so it hasn't changed as much as I would have hoped in all the years I've been in the industry. But women clients are more likely to come to financial planners, financial professionals. They're more likely to ask questions, more likely to want their questions answered. They want good information. They want to know what they're doing right, what they could be doing better. And I think that's a wonderful improvement. How do you think you get that industry to change and get more women into the field? Well, I think that we have to, people like me, the people who have been doing it for a long time, have to welcome uh, women into our own businesses. We have to go to universities and other places and speak to women who think this isn't for me, because it is. It is. Women can be very, very strong and good in this industry. And sometimes uh, they need to be told that, and they may need to find a mentor for themselves. There are many ways they can get better and better at it, and they just need someone to tell them. And as you were talking about role models, to have a role model come and address their group would be a terrific plus. You've spoken about how for years you were the only woman in the room or just one of a handful of women at industry conferences. 
Did that lack of women in the room ever cause you to doubt your path? Uh, no, actually, I never thought of it that way. I thought I was providing a well-needed service. I also thought when I began that I could have been like some of those women who were too shy to talk about money or who didn't know anything about money, didn't know the right questions to ask. And so it, it just drove me on much more. Is that what kept you in the game? I think in the beginning, until I got to work with a lot of clients who I really love to be with every day. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if everybody does this. I socialize with some of my clients. I have a client who she's now in Vancouver uh, because of, of uh, our health situation. But uh, she and I have been to Lincoln Center together many times. And, you know, have a, a several others of those. I mean, I really enjoy their company. Going out to dinner with them is, and discussing things is, is really uh, not financial things, just discussing life things is really fun, fun for me. They've asked me many times. I guess it's fun for them. <laughs> You're viewed as a leader and a vanguard in your generation. Like we said before, one of the things you're known for is creating financial literacy programs, which you also referenced, and resources to help women better understand and manage their wealth. At these events, you don't necessarily always have financial experts. You could have an author of a popular book, right? So how does that relate back to women's finances? Well, I think for women, it's about feeling very comfortable. And I think it, it's about bonding. I had a woman talk, this was some years ago, about what happened to her after her husband died and she was a young widow. And I had a room full of people who weren't widows and they wanted to know the female experience. This woman had put together a group of widows in her situation, in her age group, and they would go out together and discuss common interests. And I think that the room I looked out at them and I knew who was a widow and who wasn't and there were two-thirds non-widows but they wanted to learn about how to be with other women how that could help them you know telling their situations sharing it finding some common ground and it was very rich they don't have to be in the exact same situation sometimes finances can seem overwhelming so if you had to give one step or have women understand the most important thing they can do to manage their finances, what would that be? What's an easy thing they can do? An easy thing is not to look at your financial life as if it's piecemeal. For example, if you get a bonus, you're going to save it or spend it or whatever. You should look at your whole life. You should look in a holistic way. If you take a trip with that money, what does that do to another part of your financial life? Or if you invest it or if you withdraw something from your investments, what's that going to do? Because each impact in your financial life will have some repercussions in other areas of your financial life. So you want to be sure that you're handling it all well and you're, you're looking. And I think that's what women are a little short-sighted. In. You have to look at the whole experience you even created a special salon in your office, which I've seen, where women can talk about money. Tell us a little bit about that space. Oh, that's funny. Yes, we moved to this new office about five years ago. And when we were looking at the floor plan and the architect's drawings, and I'm one of the few women in leadership, and I told everybody that we were going to have a uh, women's parlor for our women to come and talk about personal things. And I had no idea how much people 
would like it. They really liked it. People said, well, I want to sit in that room. <laughs> you know, I want to tell you about. And so they would tell me about how their daughter-in-law doesn't let them see the grandchildren or oh, something that hurt, something that was personal that they didn't want to say in front of other advisors who might not understand. And, uh, you know, I think that's bond my clients and I have most of all. We communicate very, very well. I listen. I care. I think they feel that. But it's uh, a little bit old-fashioned. It's, it's not a big conference room, and that's the idea of it. It's a small, simple room where you could sit in a very, very comfortable high-back chair, very well padded, and you could have tea out of a, a teapot with the Queen's picture on it, <laughs> and you could, <laughs> you could thumb through a book from a recent museum show and just be very private. It sounds like clients share very intimate details of their lives with you. How do you create that level of trust as an advisor? I think it takes a long time. I think you have to always keep the client topmost in your mind. That's what's important. That's why you're there, not to share your knowledge or show that you have all this knowledge and expertise, but to know what the client needs and to pursue that end of things and to be patient. Sometimes things take a while. And if you're able to deliver things sooner than you say rather than later than you say, all those good things that everybody knows about, the clients will notice and they'll trust you and they know that, that we have their best interests at heart. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, Karen talks about her work with clients after the death of a loved one, her advice for widows, and how to keep your finances intact during difficult times. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. You specialize in working with widows and Sadly, due to COVID-19, more women have become widows. It must be very difficult to have conversations with women about money when they're grieving. How do you navigate those talks and what do you tell widows? I think for people who have just lost a husband or another loved one, it's not the best time to talk about money because even though they think it is and even though they may call on you and ask you, I don't think they're going to remember much of what you've discussed. But I think if you are working with widows, you have to take one step at a time. I think it's too much to swallow to tell them everything you know about, okay, where do you want to live? Are you moving? Are you going to be living with one of your children? Are you going back to work? Are you this? I don't think that that's a good idea. You can't spit it out all out. I remember one widow who, uh, she's still my client, of course, and her husband died suddenly and uh, he left her a couple of million dollars and she was not 
that young a woman. And so she was going to be okay for the rest of her life. She lived kind of modestly, simply, and she was going to be okay. But she was so fearful that she wouldn't go to dinner with her women friends. Mm. And so if I said, listen, you've got lots of money. You could have a dinner. Go treat yourself. I think she would have run out screaming, you don't understand me. <laughs> but, but when I said to her, well, where do you usually go for dinner? And what does it cost? And how often do you go? And it ended up that she would spend maybe another seven or $800 a year on these dinners with these women friends. And clearly, to me, very important to keep up her relationships with her friends and not stay when she said she wanted to go. And uh, to show her that one thing. And then she came back to talk about other things and we tackled them one at a time. And that was much easier for her to bite off. I would imagine some people who have suffered a major loss go to the other extreme and treat themselves just to cope, like go on a vacation or buy nice cars or a new house or do something they've been wanting to do. What's the happy medium here? Because it sounds like there's a bit of extreme behavior. I think it's okay to go on that one vacation if you feel up to it and to honor your husband's memory or to start new or, or whatever's in your mind, that's fine. It's what worries you as a, as a financial professional is if they're going to take one of those every few weeks. <laughs> so, you know, I think you could talk about that. Is this your vacation for the year? Or are you going to take another one? Let's find out if that seems reasonable. And I do believe that um, at times of stress, it, it, a lot of people want to treat themselves and if they can afford it financially and if they know it's a one-off, that's okay. If some of our listeners are widows, what's the first step they might want to consider? Well, there are a lot of steps probably before they see me. They probably have to take care of funeral arrangements and, and sometimes those could cost a lot of money. But when it comes to the financial, I think the most important thing is deciding how their life is going to be the same and how it's going to be different. Are they moving to a new place? Are they selling their house? Are they buying another house? Are they moving across the state? I did have a widow who decided to move to a place she had never been. And I try to tell her to go and rent a home there for three or four months and see how she liked it. But she just bought the house and went. And it worked out for the rest of her life, but unfortunately that was short. She became very ill. And mm. so, you know, it worked out for less than a year. This kind of loss doesn't just impact spouses. It also hits family members, right? I would imagine they would need to take some financial steps too. I believe everybody should build up an emergency fund, even if things are going well. You don't have to wait till you're in trouble to, because now we have COVID. A lot of people wanted to get out of certain areas and into other areas or maybe laid off from work for a short while or whatever it is. And so those with the emergency fund probably are doing much better than those without. And so it's always a good thing. And for some people, it depends how conservative they are or how at risk they feel their job is, whether it'll be a six-month emergency fund or a one-year living cost emergency fund. And they could talk to somebody about which is more appropriate for their situation tough economic times like the one we're in now notoriously set women back financially and also change people's money habits. How have you seen people's financial behaviors change since the pandemic began? You know, I think some people are 
finding that they're not spending as much. And I think some of it they could use to spend on their bills and some of it they could put away in their 401k. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really a, a gift to themselves to have this money and, and transfer it into the right places right now. What are you advising people who have lost their jobs? Yeah, I think that's very, very troubling. And probably a lot of people are in that situation. I think people who have applied for unemployment are able to get an extra, I'd call it a bonus, <laughs> and to make a little extra money. But for people who are just waiting for the next job and not knowing when that'll be and where that'll be, perhaps they could do something from home. Perhaps they could start consulting or doing something that they're expert at from their home. Uh, or if worse comes to worse and they can't do that, planning, planning how they're going to go forward for days when they could get back to normal. Do they need to rewrite the resume? Do they need to get advice from somebody? Do they want the same job? Do they want to train for a different job? And they could be working on that. I mean, so many people I speak to and they say, you know, I'm not quite sure what day it is <laughs> and everything. But you can make the most of some of those days. You know, when else are you going to have this big a chunk of time to be able to think these things through. Karen, it feels like a very difficult time in our history. So much uncertainty in the stock market, in the economy. People have lost their jobs by the millions. How do we get through this? Because Karen, you've seen so many ups and downs over the years. Give us some perspective. How do we not feel hopeless? Well, the funny thing is that, that the market declined a lot recently, but then it's gone back up again. And uh, so a lot of people are sort of chasing the last stock price. You know, they're saying, I want some of that. I <laughs> Give me some too. And so, you know, it's kind of risky. And hopefully a lot of people have had a long-term plan in mind. And the long-term plan could be something you've done yourself. It could be like in 15 years, I'm going to retire or whatever it is. And so work towards that and don't make a lot of sudden risky moves without consulting somebody. It's a very, very dangerous time to do that. And try to be very patient and wait things out if things aren't going your way, because things will return to normal. Uh, you know, I don't know what the word normal is going to mean at that mm. time, but just something that pleases you better, that you'll feel better about. And so I think that if you can wait it out and not do anything sudden and strange, you'll be better off in the long run. This was great. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Oh, you're very welcome. It was fun. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trinae Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Beret Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. Chief information officers, long regarded as technical gurus serving the business, are often today's visionaries, evangelists, and change agents for the business. Join Deloitte's Lou DiLorenzo in conversation with tech leaders who've challenged the status quo, redefining the CIO's role by transforming organizations and industries. Where technology and influence converge, new opportunities and value can emerge. 